All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DevOps Decrypted Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Laura Laramore, and joining me today are uh, Jobin and Rasmus and John Mort, and we're going to talk about some cool topics today and see what we get into. So first up is this news about Reddit and third-party market apps. Who wants to start us off with that? I can I can introduce it as uh, the resident nerd. Well, we're all nerds in different flavors, but oddly, even though I'm not really that much of a Redditor, I do follow it, and I am a big, big fan of you know open source development, third party development, and so on. So a thing happened in that you know Reddit has been a cultural institution for many years now. the The core of the project did not necessarily provide really good tools for like moderators. And, and the sorts. So a, a, a third-party development ecosystem has developed over the years with a lot of third-party apps that actually access the Reddit API to get you the content in different formats. This was very much used by the, the moderators that did not think there were enough good moderating tools on Reddit, but the third-party solutions, you know, figure that out. Then, and this might be where I'm a little sketchy on whether this relates completely or not, the AI explosion happened. And there are these models that are being trained on an immense amount of data online, which includes Reddit posts and Stack Overflow and all those kind of things. And Reddit then has been looking for ways to monetize. And maybe they saw that and like, hey, wait a minute. We have all this stuff. We can sell this instead of just letting people scrape it for free and decided that, oh, it's time to start monetizing our API, possibly at the level of which it would make sense for AI, which is kind of like, higher because they can do one big scrape and then process whereas regular users do constant pulls because they're just you know viewing the site over and over again on, on different days so possibly to kind of monetize it for ai they are completely screwing up for third-party developers who are doing much more api polls because they're actually end users are using the site so some of the popular third-party applications are looking at bills in the double digit millions of dollars a year for something that used to be free that not a lot of them have much you know business built on top of a few of them might have you know donations or subscription tiers but it's it's a trickle it's teeny tiny and all of them to my knowledge have said we're going to have to close shop when this goes in there it just it's too expensive we can't do it and there is understandably a lot of drama about this the favorite of which is putting various rules in place that many, you know, of the top tier subreddits are now exclusively content about John Oliver, which is hilarious. And you should look it up if you haven't seen it yet. It is wonderful. It is really the internet at its core. But in our context, it comes back to, hey, how do you handle third-party developers? How can you monetize fairly while not alienating your community, and so on and so forth. So I mean, this is very interesting, um, especially uh, us being um, adaptivists, you know, a company that actually works with a lot of vendors and uh, creating add-ons and apps on top of the functionality they offer. And we have a lot of customers who are actually making use of it, right? Uh, what is interesting to me is, you know, the vendor itself decides to shut down the extra functionality offered by the third-party developers. Uh, obviously, marketplace, that's a different business model, right? 
And I believe there are a lot of vendors like Atlassian who does wonderful things with Marketplace. And we are actually on the right side of the spectrum there. Uh, what's going to happen one day if Atlassian decides, you know, call it quits and shut down the Marketplace? I mean, that's definitely going to impact a lot of customers. Not that Atlassian is ever going to do that. Uh, they, 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 I think they show the right example, uh, right? In this case, what Reddit is doing is, okay, yep, we are going to monetize it. We can monetize it. How about we monetize it uh, by <laughs> essentially, you know, destroying the third-party vendors who were actually relying on them to provide this such a functionality. Uh, doesn't sit well with me. John, what do you think? I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. And I think I particularly as some of these, some of these apps have been along around for much longer than like the, the Reddit mobile apps have, have been. And it's like part, you know, part of the success of Reddit has been like lean, leaning on the, on, on the, those, those, those things. And it's kind of, I think I see it as being a slight against the historical community that's been, that's been kind of built, built, built up in, 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 in one way. Um, and yeah, there seems to be a kind of a stubbornness here um, as well to sort of to compromise or negotiate or, or, or something or something which is best for all of the community. Um, and and I think there's 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 possibly a difference here between um, like a content company and company who's selling a product in the in in that in that sort of thing. So. Um, I can't imagine like a decent part of Atlassian's success has been how extensible it is and about how you can bend the tools to meet what's what's needed. And the marketplace is a real you know, accelerator for that. You see other companies that have that sort of similar um, ethos. Like I think Microsoft is a good good example of how enabling developers and supporting them has helped build Microsoft's business. Um, uh, and things like and there's been a few missteps along along the way you could see similar with uh, with, with apple um and like the these apps apps on the on, on on the app store and things but i think these content companies have got a real problem in you know how do you monetize things like stack exchange they have a similar set of strikes going sort of going from from moderators um because of the the stack exchange policies and and that's all about AI and access to data. There, I think it's a really difficult place to really difficult place to be. Um, um, yeah, particularly when your content and your things are being used to for other companies to be, you know, making making a lot of money. Like OpenAI is making a lot of money off the back of all of the brilliant data that's Reddit and Stack Overflow produced via their communities. I think community is the keyword there, right? I mean, it, 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 when all those third-party developers come together, they, they're building, they're innovating, they have more ideas, they're creating things that the original vendor wouldn't ever have thought about, right? And when you come together as a community, you're able to deliver more value to the end customer. I think that's what's missing if you shut down all the third-party developers. And that that's what makes me a bit sad about this whole uh, fiasco, you know, uh, you're feeling you're leaving that community out and to be honest i mean as you mentioned you know atlassian has done really good with this and you actually see that you know the the third party 
vendors are invested in it. And if you go to a community event where at last and you could see so many people in there, you know, a lot of them third party vendors. And you wouldn't say, I'm not going to name any names. You go to another vendor where there is no uh, marketplace integration or there's no third party vendors like that. You don't see as many people there. There's no community feeling there. So I think that that's really key key to this whole thing, at least in my opinion. Yep, and I love that you bring up the uh, the the Stack Overflow uh, setup, John. I should have also remembered that because yeah, there's a whole strike there again because of content management and community response. It is distinct, which is also interesting because the setup with Reddit is definitely you know, third party development. They've been able to use the API. They made awesome, cool things, but just effort years of of you know of heart putting into it. And the response to that was as ham-fisted as you can imagine, because it's Reddit. Of course it is. They they responded with John Oliver and jokes about landed gentry and all this fun stuff. It, it's it's madness. But it's just such a terrible, terrible reaction from the, you know, the owners of the setup. But that's about third-party development. With Stack Overflow, it was about uh, because all these, you know, chat GPT generated answers suddenly started flooding all the different you know sites under stack exchange the moderators were, were, were you know cracking down on it because they want to curate their content that's what they do they don't want all these generic no effort answers that may be completely wrong and that's you know doubly important because if it gets posted there it's going to get re-ingested into the next machine model and it gets worse and the, the community the community managers are on top of that and they're trying to fix it but then the owners come back in and say oh wait a minute we don't like you cracking down on all this stuff because we think you're hurting engagement and you know their numbers and then again it's just it becomes this terrible interaction between the the owners that be and the community even though it's it's realistically very different situations Seems to me like the freedom of speech debate, right? <laughs> How much of freedom you should have on the uh, stack of one, things like that. I mean, you're right about the content. If the content is not right anymore, it's going to be re-ingested again and being used somewhere else, right? And ultimately, all those answers that GPT is going to give you, that's not going to be the right answers. That's what it thinks is the right answer from my hundred other posts that I found in Stack Overflow or elsewhere. Uh, so I think it's it's key that that community engagement is there to crack down off on false information or uh, wrong information. And there are solutions here. Like even though I'm maybe not the biggest fan of Atlassian myself, they do seem to have the marketplace stuff and the setup, you know, work out because they have clear conditions. They have a nice marketplace, and everybody knows, you know, kind of like the playing field and the rules that they're dealing with, and they are not putting foot in mouth left and right about all these like, yeah, we know you did all this wonderful stuff, but we're going to do something completely different. So kudos to them for having, you know, you know, set up that part really well. It's not necessarily that these things are impossible. It's just you need to find that balance between monetization and community development. Yeah, I think there may be a point where you can hurt your community to the point that your value may not be worth the monetization too. So very interesting. <laughs> and maybe I can uh, carry that into a, a similar topic that I've been bubbling around in my head lately. Because 
another vendor can maybe be relevant to this area and maybe john you have some you know more more examples on this but to me i started wondering about what's happening to slack because after the acquisition by salesforce the culture at slack has been changing substantially the the old ceo is gone a lot of founders are gone a lot of the original you know vision and stuff that made it work the way it did almost in a little bit akin to Reddit in that it was this, you know, wild exploration journey that you went somewhere neat is now becoming more monetized and, and, and set up. And to me, that got into wondering, hmm, is Discord the new Slack? Because they really have that, that cultural feeling, even though Discord is, you know, a voice communication platform that started as a way for gamers to talk to each other while they're blowing each other up. It is realistically becoming possibly the new Slack because of how well they're engaging with their community and how well they're keeping all these like innovations and, and novel features going. There are there are companies now that completely bypass Slack and just go straight to Discord. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really viable platform for for you know as 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 a chatting and real time communication um, thing for 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 sure. And I think for particularly for um, uh, like smaller projects uh, and and kind of open source things, I think it's it's ideal really in in a in a lot of ways because it's super easily, um, is is easily accessible and it's something which you know like I mean it's 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 it is I'm always impressed with it when I use it how kind of easy easy it is to you to use and to jump on a jump on a channel switch between devices. Um, you know, it kind of does it does a whole lot of things just like effort, effortlessly, um, and I think they've they've also done a great job with um, you know like bots and um, and the integration points and and kind of that that that's that you know it's been pretty easy. And you've got like companies like Midjourney. I think it's absolutely fascinating that their entire the, the only way you can access the tool is through a Discord bot. It's just mind blowing if you think about that down there. Things like that's they've built an entire business, like huge business, off 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 that as as a as a delivery platform, um, and it really fosters community in, the, in that the way that you sort of you use that. So yeah, I, I quite I, I enjoy using Discord. Uh, I mean, I'll probably be a distant voice here. I mean, that's only because I haven't used Discord much. I mean, I don't see a problem with Slack. Uh, and it does seem like a lot of the cooler, younger generation are like John here and attracted towards uh, a Discord. But that's more like, you know, Facebook versus Insta for me. I mean, a lot of the cooler, younger generation is on Insta, but I'm still on Facebook. <laughs> Uh, so similarly, I'm still on Slack, and I don't see a problem in Slack, uh, especially you know when it came to some time back discussion around creating service packages around Slack. I was wondering, the the tool is so intuitive, you you don't really see a reason why we should be building any service packages around Slack because you know everybody can figure it out by themselves, right? So I I kind of voted against it at that point. Uh, so I thought, yeah, the adoption of Slack is pretty easy. So what you're saying is, you know, Discord is even probably more easier. But could that be just a perspective, or? Well, it's it's not about necessarily being easier. It's being. I think it's some of the tools being more front and center for for you. So one of the one of the problems that you that that, that you have with Slack is that they kind of they gate kind of community management and and things by price. 
um and and it becomes really like some of the some of the tools for like um suggesting or enforcing good slack etiquette you've got to pay for um and the 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 uh, it seems like the way that salesforce has gone out to, to monetize it um is has, has been through like deficiencies in the product whereas the way that discord monetizes it is is through scale and usage in that that that's, that seems seems to be the kind of the 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 approach that they they, they take um uh, and, and Slack has this little bit of a policy of, you know, features starting off in the premium end and then and then coming down the various the various tiers. But things don't it doesn't happen very quickly. And um, yeah, so I'm, I I think yeah, I, I kind of I, I just I just don't really like that business model of of that sort of trying to force the force the monetization to force force you up a tier. Yep. Yeah, um, I think the way they different was that Slack always kind of started out a little bit more corporate it was you know had free tiers and all the kind of stuff but they had an interesting culture behind it because they did sort of also build out of a side product that became you know real on this time getting mixed up with discord i don't think so so they had some cool things going on and they did neat things but after the salesforce acquisition they sort of had their moment where well we're going to monetize even more and we're going to kind of drop a lot of the culture to where it really just became a generic, well, yeah, you can do chat ups on there. It's fine. You're okay if you pay for it, if your company pays for it. But you would probably not use Slack very often anymore for anything that's not like a day job. You really go for Discord for that, where they didn't start with that at all. They, they as I said, literally started as a platform for voice chat in games. And they always had this huge focus on culture and fun and innovation and so on. And then over time, it just turned out that companies also kind of liked having fun and that easy access to thing. And then third party ecosystems developed to help support that with all these advanced bots and applications that are like entire bots. And you can hook it all up. And the weird thing Discord did was they didn't lock down. They just kind of supported this and kept going. But in part, maybe that's because they're still running on like VC cash or something like that. And they haven't had their Reddit moment where they're really starting to heavily monetize and become uh, revenue positive. I have no idea if they are. And that may be happening right now because even like after I started thinking about this topic, I just, you know, found some um, announcements. I'm not even sure if it's super public yet or if it's just being rolled out to some servers. But Discord is beginning to now build in more tools about subscribing to servers and making tiers and even like introducing almost microtransactions on servers. So they're beginning to explore a little bit with that whole like, how can we make this truly profitable? But they haven't had the Reddit moment of, let's look at all the third party developers, we're doing our own thing now. So I'm, I'm hoping that they will they will stay closer to, you know, they don't take away those tools that John mentioned that make it really easy and nice and fun to use Discord, but they instead try, try to monetize different corners and leave some of the third-party developers like Midjourney and others to continue their success and, and support them and just come up with a, a more fair and equal way of balancing things. That, that, that also brings up the question, right? I mean, how, powerful, or how many third-party integrations do they have at the moment? I mean, I know at least with Slack, when I last checked, they had more than 2,000 integrations available, right? 
And obviously for companies like ours, you know, we we rely on a lot of Slack apps and we we write a bunch of apps ourselves, right? Uh, helping our customers using Slack. How easy it is for Discord and do we have any idea on, you know, how, how powerful their ecosystem is? Yes, there is. I, I was curious myself, hmm, how much is that really like marketplace-y and, and ready to go out of Discord? Because I didn't think there was a lot because it's not in your face. You can go look for Discord bots. And I think it's at least in the tens of thousands of established bots. It may be more than that even. Oh. The One of the main sites says explore millions of Discord bots on servers. So like they're big scale. And I thought, well, I mean, they can't all be on the marketplace, something like that. But then when you go digging, like, oh, there's also like hundreds or thousands of, of integrations in the marketplace that you can like, hmm, okay, that's pretty neat. So they have that kind of stealth. It's actually there. You may not realize it because that's not how it grew up, but there is this incredible ecosystem, including full, fully monetized third, third parties and so on, just kind of hiding behind the scenes. Or hiding backstage, as one might say. Very well. I think that's a viable option then, even for companies, is what you're saying. It absolutely is. And and it's it's neat and fun to build on, which I might also like hint, hint, wink, wink. Maybe Adapterlist is doing this too. Hmm. So uh it's exciting. Slack, not exciting anymore. Yeah, nearly every Discord channel that I'm in, someone in the Discord channel has made a bot specific to that channel or something that's useful. I even attended a developer hackathon on a developer channel that was geared towards, hey, let's make a bot to make our channel a little better. So there's a lot out there and there's a lot of customization that you can do. Yeah, and one of the, one of the things that Discord did explicitly is try is to try and en enable creators to to make money I mean, it's part one of the one of the things that they sort of actually do which i think is another interesting part of that um uh these one, one thing i will say about the the bots though is that you don't necessarily know like who the who's making it what happens with the data all, all of those those sorts of things which um you know slack is much hotter on and the thing the verifications and things that they that they that they do um and 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 kind of building out a kind of a corporate server on 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 discord might might require you to have some awkward conversations with bot vendors to go you know hey uh, what you know what certificate what security certifications and things do you do you hold on those 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 kinds of those kind kinds of things um and and uh within the sort of the slack app directory you get a better idea of those sorts of things it's something also that atlassian are pushing really hard on and uh, uh trying to make that that kind of trust um trust visible in, in in that um which kind of might take us on to the next next topic <laughs> um by the kind of software bill of bill of materials as, as being uh um you know gonna have a, a new uh well, that's not actually new, but it, but a really important part of sh shipping shipping software. Um, things I don't know. If someone want to jump in and uh, explain explain software bill of materials. Uh, I am happy to let you do that because this one I am like vaguely familiar with it over time. I know it's been a thing in like Maven and Gradle and those kind of build systems over time, but it's always been one of those things that's yeah, I know it's there in the periphery somewhere. I know it's important, but I don't really have time for it. So why is it important yeah. now? 
I think it's it's always been there, right? I mean, now it is just getting traction because of all the security issues that's been happening all around the world. Especially, I mean, this is not a problem just for any any particular vendor. For anybody who is using software, this is actually a big thing. And obviously for marketplace vendors like Atlassian, they need to pay attention to this. Um, and I was actually in the GitLab Leadership Partner Summit the other day. You know, tools like GitLab is actually taking measures to make sure that a spam is available and visible and, you know, can be presented easily to the customer or can even be looked at in their pipelines. Um, so going going back to your original question about what an SBOM is, you know, it basically gives a lot of information about each of the component in a in a software supply chain, right? I was actually looking up uh, specifically what are the things that you usually will find in the SBOM. You know, you'll have the component's name, uh, the component supplier name, the version of the component, uh, any unique identifier for that particular component, which could be, you know, software identification tags, uh, the packages, uniformed resource locators, all of those things. And the component's dependency relationship to the software. Uh, uh, so all of those information together makes the software bill of materials or what we call SBOM. Um, I, and again, you know, there should be an order for the SBOM. There should be a timestamp for the SBOM creation. Uh, the good thing about all of those is, you know, that gives you some kind of trust in the software that you are using. And in a particular software, there could be multiple components, each with its own SBOM. And you could essentially track down the dependencies. You can see what each component does, who created it, uh, what is inside the component, so on and so forth. Yep. I kind of think of it as a continual evolution of, you know, dependency management. Like you used to just have like, here's some jar files. We'll just dump it into the source tree and build it. Like, good luck. And then you got into more like the Gradles and the Mavens. Like, oh, now we can build you like a hierarchy of all your dependencies and so on. But it was still, still really just like, go find these jar files and pull them down and, and stick it in the code. Then we got into some of the, you know, providers like Sonatype with Nexus IQ and so on, like trying to tie the dependencies to, oh, we know that there are vulnerabilities announced for these particular things over here. And this might be kind of like the next level, which it gets kind of a little legalese about it because it gets into the actual providers behind the library. And as you say, like really nitty gritty details like timestamps and probably signature keys or other things so that you really start beginning to realize that, yeah, you're depending on this big tree of stuff. And actually, there are people behind all this stuff. It's like that famous graph of the, of the you know, what makes the internet run. It's this one guy that maintains a library thanklessly over in Oklahoma that's like supporting 90% of the internet. Like, whatever that, that poor guy, we should probably get, get him some help. Yeah, I mean, it still scares me every time I I I used to run a Maven install. You know, it downloads the whole of internet, right? I mean, you you don't even really realize the number of packages it is downloading. Uh, and there was one of the conversations that I was listening. There was this inter interesting analogy about you know how it is like the nutrition facts. So basically, when when you pick up something from the store, you look at the various contents in it, and you see. 95% of daily value of uh, sugar. Oh, I don't want this anymore. <laughs> you know, pick up something else, which is, you know, less sugary. So it, it kind of gives you confidence that the software or the component that you're using is actually good enough to be used. 
So that is where the SBOMS comes in. And I, I believe it also works really well with the zero trust policy. So GitLab was emphasizing that because now everybody is shifting left. So there is a lot of emphasis on security and there is a zero trust policy around it. Um, so unless you know that the component is actually trustworthy and you know it actually has an SBOM published, you exactly know what's in the package, you shouldn't be using it. Yeah, and and I think it's this. I mean, the, the the time where the um it really like as bombs really kicks off was around the log log for J vulnerability of a couple couple of years back. That which you, you were there were a lot of teams who were scrambling around of like, I don't know if we are affected by this vulnerability. You know, and that's a really kind of key important question is like, is is this something that we that we are we are affected by? Um, and and you've got the you've also got the um the, so that's kind of one side of things is is a really interesting new kind of AI vulnerability on a thing so uh, so lots of these lots of kind of um AI coding assistants will hallucinate um code and and sometimes hallucinate libraries and people have been squatting those libraries that the 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 AIs hallucinate which suddenly starts to you, you have this kind of like trusted system for um because it usually produces you decent code or whatever there's now they're suddenly producing you something which is harmful um and you uh, and the, and so how we treat dependencies and how we treat those kind of things i think is is kind of becomes increasingly important as the complexity of the software and the complexity of the dependencies goes goes up um, I think and that that kind of like supply chain attack is is something which is you need to be you very quickly be able to establish what what components from all the way from the front end all the way down to what is you know what your server you're running on you need to you need to understand that and understand who's responsible for each for each section of it. Yeah, yeah. There was a a recent thing highlighted for GitHub where a new attack is possible to where. If you rename, you know, the path where your code lives on GitHub, GitHub, friendly enough, makes a redirect to point you to a new thing. If you have code that's pointing at the old link and just directly pulls code and maybe starts executing it, somebody can go register the original name after a period of time, and now the redirect breaks, and now you're getting whatever the code is there. So there's a lot of these things out there. It, it, it is scary, and it's good that we're trying to address it. It's just still a question how it's going to end up looking. Yeah, I still can't believe John called chat GPT a trusted system. But anyway, <laughs> that's not the it's point. But the, of trust. <laughs> the point is to have that radical transparency right, with S-bombs in place. And you know, tools like GitLab, as I was mentioning earlier, they're using, uh, they're doing a lot of things with S-bombs. Like, for example, they have new license sets uh, to reveal the S-bombs in, in the pipelines. So that is something you can have now in the pipelines. When you're building your software, you can do this license sets and you can do checks around S-bombs. And they're publishing an S-bomb of S-bombs even at the different system levels. So you don't have to go into the individual components to see details of the uh, that particular component. Instead, you can have an SBOM of SBOMs. So you have all those information pulled together at a higher level. So it's easier to get visibility into what's underneath, uh, which I found was very interesting. Uh, and there was another thing that was mentioned was there's a 
there's merging and ingesting of S-bombs into the documentation. So it becomes easier to consume all of that information. It's unlike looking at the nutrition facts of each and every uh, every product that you pick up from the shop. Instead, you have this higher visibility into S-bombs, which is all great stuff in my opinion, uh, because as tools get, tools like GitLab or maybe other tools start doing this more often, uh, you you get this increased visibility into what's in a it's a in a software package makes life a little bit easier for developers i hope yeah and and i'm i'm sort of there there are two things that are higher in my mind in this which is um you know what kind of tooling do you use for this and what if anything is going to be costly about it because this is happening now like S bombs have been mandated by the US government now for some types of work, which is going to affect even like clients of ours. We have to go tell them, you got to start using this if you want to keep selling to the US government. That's a big deal. But that kind of sudden push on enterprises, especially the aging ones that are not necessarily at the edge of like good tooling, they're going to start tracking this in Excel spreadsheets. That's not, that's not great. <laughs> That's not the way to do it. And there will be tooling out there for it. Like Maven and Gradle, for instance, did wonderful things to dependency management and like charting the graphs and so on that you might not have in the old days with Ant or something crazy. And that's free. It's it's available. But then when you get into Nexus IQ and it's like tracking of vulnerabilities that affects it, of course, you have to pay. And there's going to be neat tooling on SBOM coming out. How's that going to look? How well is going to be adopted? And is it going to cost lots of money to where that poor guy in, in Oklahoma of Northern Nebraska or whatever, who's maintaining this thankless little library that just keeps the internet online, is he going to be able to use those tools? That seems important. Yeah, it's a very good point you brought up about the government agencies, you know, increasingly recommending or requiring a spam. Uh, creation for all, all software develop, uh, vendors you know that, that's happening already and i believe the uh, podcast or the webinar i saw was gitlab partnering with um, one of the u.s government agencies they were talking about exactly the same thing and that is also the reason why gitlab is doing a lot of work on the s1 side these days i would imagine a lot of the other vendors will follow suit and you know start uh, start exposing S bombs in the pipelines, in the tooling, uh, whatever it is. Yeah, I almost wonder if this is one of those areas because of just the criticality of the vulnerabilities and the exploits and all that in this area, where there should be a more push to have, you know, a, a higher foundation of service to catch these things. I can understand that lots of companies you know, need to make money, and there's a lot of optional things you can throw out there in, in areas that don't relates so much to security is like yeah you can get the super shiny neat thing but you got to pay for it but like, well i mean yeah that'd be great but it's luxury we can live without but when it's security and supply chain attacks and all that kind of stuff you want everybody to have that stuff because it affects you yeah uh, i mean that, that i mean that is what the um so the, the open source technology improvement fund is trying it is looking at trying to trying to fund some of those open source projects and um and uh, and and look, looking at security vulnerabilities looking at patching and those 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 kind of things and there's a there's a decent number of organizations who have pledged 
um pledge to su- su- support that um i do worry a little bit about the maintenance aspect of, of these things it's like you're kind of having you know a pull pull request forced upon you by you know, by someone like deep in your open source maintainer are you accepting it or you're not what's the you know is it there's 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 all of all of that um things because there's the whole maintenance maintenance cost and, and things but it seems like a step in the right direction yeah. um uh, I, I I have seen this in person myself. Uh, as, as I look at this, you know, this fund, like it's a great idea, and then you get into the whole like, you know, lots of good things happening, like posting bounties and all that kind of stuff. But I've seen the dark side of it because uh, I, I've run an open source project that's more than a decade old, so we have a lot of old code in there. And one day out of the blue, we had this amazingly detailed security report dropped in our GitHub, and it's like, wow, this sounds really critical. Uh, nice find, but like, what is this? And what, you'll pay us money to fix it because it's security? Um, I'm going to need some information here. And we kind of talked it out, and it turned out that this was kind of like a startup or some sort of thing where they were trying to do this kind of like good you know, community involvement and things, but somehow they were probably trying to make money themselves or get a good position to get into that stuff. And the vulnerability they found, it was to a, a an HTML parsing library inside a UI widget inside a video game meant to preview HTML documentation embedded within the video game. And it was in a tech vector where if you could connect to the website, you could gain control of it. But it wasn't a website. <laughs> it, it, it was like a widget inside a game that had nothing to do with the internet and ancient code that didn't matter. And it's just, guys, you've kind of wasted our time here. But going back to the point that you're making, Rasmus, I think there's already a standard available right now. So and it, it's on developers to, you know, define the SPOM for the components that they work on. I think SPD, it's, it's an open international standard uh, developed under the Linux Foundation. Uh, it already defines a format for, uh, you know, SBOM documents, and that can be considered by humans, by machines, by tools, whatever you were talking about earlier, right? by GitLab, whatever it is. Um, so I think there's already an existing standard. I think there's an increase in demand for publishing as SBOM. So that's going to happen. Yep, yep. I would love to see it more. Um, I can definitely hear you know, John's concern and validate it there that more code review, more mysteries. Like if somebody submits an SBOM thing for my open mm-hmm. source thing, like, that's great. Uh, I think, are you going to help us maintain it? Because we don't know what sure. you're talking about. So, yeah, it's always a, a question of balance. Yes, indeed. I think uh, with the government push to make vendors supply that, that's going to trickle down to the whole industry. And it's whether you want to be on the driving force of that or whether you want to be on the receiving force from the government, because it's going to come down more than likely. Well, thanks for joining us to discuss third-party apps and this SBOM intrigue. We hope that you're enjoying the show and let us know what you think on social media at Adaptivist. And we look forward to keeping this conversation going there. So for Joven, Rasmus, and John, I'm Laura, and this has been DevOps Decrypted, part of the Adaptivist Live Podcast Network.